Join Dr. Anthony Fauci and your colleagues in respiratory medicine at the ATS 2021 International Conference starting May 14th. Register today at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Drs. Gulliger, Costa, and colleagues entitled Effect of Lowering Tidal Volume on Mortality in ARDS Varies with Respiratory System Elastance. I'm joined today by one of the lead authors of the study, Dr. Ewan Gulliger, Assistant Professor at the Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Toronto and scientist at the Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. It's my pleasure to be with you. So it seems like we're coming on over 20 years since the original ARMA trial, and we still aren't really sure how best to ventilate patients with ARDS. What is the driving pressure hypothesis, and why might this strategy be better than focusing solely on tidal volume? Thanks. So, you know, the original lower tidal volume ventilation trials were all driven by the notion that reducing stress and strain within the, within the injured lung would improve outcomes by reducing the risk of ventilator-induced lung injury. And really, I think that's what ARMA was able to demonstrate. As you know, as everyone knows, a strategy of 68 mils per kilo versus 10 to 12 was superior in terms of mortality. But that doesn't mean that every patient gets the same degree of benefit in terms of reducing stress and strain. And what the driving pressure hypothesis says essentially is that the degree of injury risk is proportional not to the tidal volume per se, but rather to the pressure generated within the lung by that tidal volume. And that's because the pressure generated within the lung reflects how much the tidal volume distends the lung given the end expiratory lung available for tidal ventilation. So the idea with the driving pressure hypothesis is that if we Uh, titrate tidal volume to driving pressure, then we're going to be more accurately adjusting tidal volume to that patient's injury risk. So that means that some patients will need more aggressive tidal volume reduction, uh, whereas other patients reducing tidal volume really doesn't have much effect on injury risk. That's the hypothesis. Well, you know, one thing that I've wondered is since that driving pressure is linked to respiratory elastance, how much of driving pressure is really just a surrogate for severity of illness? That's a really astute point. And this has been the big problem with interpreting driving pressure analyses. If you have a study where you show an association between driving pressure and mortality, what you're essentially doing is uh, showing an association between a patient with more severe ARDS and mortality. And that's always been the biggest challenge to interpreting some of the very thoughtful uh, driving pressure analyses that have been published. Uh, everyone knows about the paper by Motto and colleagues in the New England Journal. Then uh, there's been other work, including that by Martin Erner, one of my colleagues here in Toronto, uh, showing a, a, an association over time. So there's it's a compelling hypothesis and the observational data are compelling, but they have this fundamental challenge to interpreting is that there's this elephant in the room, the confounding effect of elastance. Well, you know, so even if driving pressure is really the correct model, why wouldn't it just be simpler to target low tidal volume on everyone? Hmm. Yeah, that's another great question. So, So there's essentially two reasons. So first of all, 
if the driving pressure hypothesis is true, six cc's per kilo is not enough of enough lowering uh, for some patients. So patients with very low lung volume and consequently very high elastance may have driving pressures that exceed uh, uh, safe limits even at six cc's per kilo. That's been documented in, in physiological studies and in lung imaging studies, the residual risk of tidal hyperdistension. And it's really thought to be the reason why, um, say in Eolia, for example, there was evidence of benefit because you're aggressively lowering tidal volume to sort of sub-physiological levels in patients with markedly elevated elastance. On the other hand, when you take a patient who has a, a large end expiratory lung volume, a low elastance, and a very low risk of excess lung stress and strain, and you suppress their tidal volume, in order to do so, you're gonna to have to often have to suppress their respiratory drive. They may be wanting a relatively larger tidal volume. That means you're applying sedation, you're setting a low uh, volume limit, which may result in dyssynchrony. Uh, you're increasing the degree of atelectasis that may develop all to no end when the, when the patient's actual risk of, of injury and its benefit from lowering tidal volume is limited. And so we might actually be able to accelerate liberation from, from sedation and from ventilation if we allow higher tidal volumes in those patients. So it's really about matching the degree of stress and strain reduction uh, to, to the individual patient. You know, I think that's an excellent background for your study here. And so let's get into your study. Your group took a very elegant approach to try to answer that exact question. Can you tell us how you designed your analysis? Yeah, so so uh, as I reflected on the driving pressure issue, um, you know, I was weighing this, this problem of confounding that you raised, the fact that elastance is sort of a confounding factor in any um, association between driving pressure and mortality. But we reasoned that if the driving, driving pressure hypothesis is true, then essentially the benefit of lowering tidal volume should be different between patients who have a high elastance versus patients who have a low elastance. And because we tried to uh, essentially sort of divide up the patients according to what, what approximated their baseline elastance, that allows us to separate out the effects of lowering tidal volume versus the effect of elastance. The other, the other really important thing about this analysis is that we used randomized treatment assignment. So that allows you to make causal inferences because the patients were randomly divided into lower versus higher tidal volume. So the, now it's not just an association, it's, a, it's an association that permits causal inference. So that was basically the reason why we approached the analysis this way. Yeah, I thought it was great how you uh, tried to attempt to mitigate that potential bias of elastance in those patients who are randomized to different tidal volumes. How, how else did you adjust for disease severity? Yeah, so, so, you know, we adjusted for um, the degree of hypoxemia as well as um, the, uh, the severity of illness score that the patient had. So we tried to take those factors into account. I think the, the biggest problem that, uh, you know, we faced in looking at these data is that we had elastance measurements from day one, not from pre-randomization. So as you know, that's a fundamental uh, flaw in, in the data. Technically, you'd want pre-randomization values. But what we did using simulation was basically to show that, let's say, tidal volume had a big effect on elastance and modified the elastance a lot from day zero to day one. Well, that would tend to push the interaction that we were looking at towards the null, which means basically that if anything, we're underestimating 
the effect of elastins rather than overestimating it. So that's kind of a technical point, but I think I emphasize it because I think it was the key limitation of the approach in the data set. And I think it's important for readers to appreciate that when they're looking at, at what we did. No, I, I agree. You know, I thought another great part of this analysis was the fact that you took a Bayesian approach. And I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit more about why you decided to choose that and perhaps the, uh, the role of prior probabilities on, uh, on your approach. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I've become, a, I guess, from a philosophical standpoint, a committed Bayesian. And the reason I think that the Bayesian approach is, is relevant is because it actually answers the scientific question that you have when you set out to answer uh, to do the study. And in this case, it's the question is, what's the probability that, that the benefit of lowering tidal volume is different according to elastance? That's, that's really the question. And the Bayesian approach lets you actually answer that question directly with a posterior, posterior probability for the interaction term. Um, of course, with a Bayesian analysis, as you mentioned, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about what kinds of priors you're going to uh, to put within the model. And um, that's, you know, if anything, makes model building even more complicated than it already is. But I think there is advantages to this. First of all, you in general uh, put neutral priors on, on, on the covariates in the model. And what that means is it at the outset constrains the model so that you reduce the probability of finding implausible effect sizes. You basically put a certain degree of, build a certain degree of skepticism into the model so that it's unlikely that you'll get extreme, extreme values. And the other thing is like we did in this paper is it allows you to do sensitivity analyses. So let's say you're really enthusiastic about driving pressure. Well, how much does incorporating that enthusiasm uh, modify the results, et cetera? And I think all of that is to give a clear picture of whether you've really ruled in your hypothesis or ruled it out or how much residual uncertainty there is. So those I think are just some of the favorable features of approaching this question with from a Bayesian standpoint. Despite all of the work that it takes up front, it makes it much easier, I think, to interpret than a lot of the other frequentist literature that we see. You know, so all combined, you ended up analyzing over a thousand patients from these prior trials. So tell me, what is the relationship between tidal volume, elastance, and death? So it's, it's pretty striking, I have to say. Um, so the first thing we showed, of course, is that, is that in patients with higher elastance, they tended to have lower, a smaller difference in tidal volume between arms, but a much larger difference in driving pressure between arms. Then we found that the difference in mortality between arms was much lower at low elastance and much higher at high elastance. In fact, the posterior probability of any mortality benefit uh, fell below 50% at an elastance of somewhere between 1 to 1.5. So if you have patients with essentially normal elastance, then in fact, th th these data suggest that if anything, there's a trend towards possible harm from, from lowering tidal volume. Now, the message of the paper is not really about the harm of lower tidal volume. It's mainly that some patients benefit a lot and some patients for, uh, uh, benefit very little. But, but the nice thing about the Bayesian uh, approach is that it actually allows you to see almost continuously where the, uh, the, the intervention actually really begins to take effect in terms of benefit. And this allows you to identify which patients uh, which subgroups of patients uh, will will see the most benefit. But there was clearly a very striking difference in the benefit of lowering tidal volume according to whether elastance was lower or higher. No, I, I agree. I think that your uh, your results are very compelling. 
Uh, one thing though that is worth commenting on is the studies that these data are drawn from are over uh, 20 years old. And we've seen a, countless advances in vent management as well as in critical care in general. How relevant do you think these studies are to modern practice and modern patients? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. It, it came up in our interactions with the reviewers as well. And I think when we first submitted the paper, we identified that as a potential limitation. I think though that although in a sense these data are outdated um, because they're old, nevertheless, these are the seminal studies in which our entire practice of ARDS management is based. You know, I was fortunate to be involved in the development of a clinical practice guideline for lung protective ventilation in ARDS with Eddie Fan and others. And it was interesting to see that the, the data on which those guideline recommendations are based are primarily from, from these older trials. So although uh, it's older data and you know outcomes might on average be better uh, since then, at least we'd like to think so, these are the seminal trials that still guide our ARDS management today. So from that standpoint, I think they're very relevant. Yeah, great point. Um, you know, speaking of, I guess, the timeliness of this, I think uh, a lot of us prior to COVID-19 uh, were pretty comfortable with a one-size-fits-all approach to ventilation. Uh, but in the past year, we've had uh, countless patients that have been very challenging to ventilate. And so I'm wondering how might a clinician interpret your study? Like, for example, is it appropriate for me to drop tidal volume to four mils per kg when I have a high driving pressure? Uh, if I think the patient can tolerate it? Or should I feel safer in delivering a larger tidal volume in a patient with compliant lungs? So one of the, the questions I, that I really wrestled with as we write up these data is like, is this sufficient to, to change practice, uh, the analysis that we're presenting? And I think from one standpoint, it's, it's very reasonable for clinicians to take th this information here and use it to, to guide ventilation as the best data available at the moment. The issue that it, these data can't really address is whether, uh, given all the advances we've made around having patients awake and breathing spontaneously and mobilizing, whether on balance uh, targeting a low driving pressure, which in many patients will require very low tidal volumes, is beneficial when weighed against the effects of you know aggressively sedating them, limiting mobility from that standpoint, et cetera. So I still think there's an important role for further trials to establish the benefit of a driving pressure driven strategy. But that said, I think to be honest that if you have a patient with uh, a low plateau and driving pressure at uh, a tidal volume of eight to 10 cc's per kilo, I think it's quite uh, acceptable to be comfortable managing that patient with that tidal volume, particularly if it allows you to have them more awake, breathing spontaneously and mobilizing, et cetera. So I think like anything, a wise clinician has to integrate many uh, different pieces of information. And this is one piece of information in that decision-making process, but it certainly makes me more comfortable about allowing large tidal volumes in spontaneously breathing patients. I no, I, I agree. I, I was wondering though, when I am uh, trying to interpret elastance, one of the challenges with that is airway pressure by itself can uh, affect elastance, whether I'm recruiting or distending a lung. And so how do you think, you know, at bedside, I should be interpreting elastance when I've got these patients that could potentially be either hyperinflated or uh, in need of, I guess, recruitment? Right. Yeah, so th there's a sense in which measuring elastance feels a bit artificial because you can modify it to some extent just by how you set the ventilator and the tidal volume itself. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a critical issue. 
I think the th to make sense out of that question, I think the issue is that you just need to bear in mind that the elastance reflects the end expiratory lung volume that's available for ventilation at, at the moment that you're setting the tidal volume. If you uh, increase the PEEP and you manage to successfully recruit more lung to participate in ventilation, then you're going to increase end expiratory lung volume and you're going to reduce the stress and strain resulting from that tidal volume that you're applying in, and your driving pressure is going to go down. So there is a kind of backdoor argument to be made here for optimizing elastins in order to uh, reduce the risk of uh, ventilator-induced lung injury, but I think it's quite indirect. And uh, that's the subject again of, I think, future clinical trials to see if a PEEP strategy that optimizes mechanics and driving pressure can improve outcomes. Of course, there is some data uh, already to suggest that possibility. I'm thinking of the trial by Catch American colleagues uh, and others, but uh, you know that obviously requires more research. But it, yeah, no question, elastance is kind of a dynamic variable, but optimizing elastance might actually be a way of, of helping to further mitigate uh, ventilator-induced lung injury. You raised a lot of points with that uh, about uh, other questions that we might ask. And, you know, as we said at the beginning, it's been two decades, over two decades since the armor trial, and we still have a lot of uncertainty about ventilator management. And you brought up uh, comments about uh, competing challenges of sedation, as well as the question about appropriate PEEP. If we were trying to design the next big trial for ventilator management in ARDS, what questions do you think we should be asking? Yeah, so that's a really exciting question. I, I agree with you. There's a lot of a lot of important questions that need to be answered. You know, I would say uh, just for one thing that one of the things that COVID-19 should teach us is the possibilities that are available to us in terms of rapidly answering questions if we can just get our act together and collaborate well and build efficient trial designs that that um, you know can enroll enough patients to answer questions. When you look at the success of recovery and remap cap and some of these other platforms, you realize, okay, if when there's a will, there's a way. And uh, I think we need to take away some lessons about that. I mean, there's big challenges to these huge global collaborations, but I think we need to find a way to do it to, to answer questions in a timely fashion. For, from the standpoint of a uh, of a ventilation question. I can tell you what my own kind of burning question is. Um, and as you may know, I've tried to um, develop this paradigm of lung and diaphragm protective ventilation where we integrate uh, not only protecting the lung by limiting stress and strain, but also keeping the diaphragm active. And to be honest with you, one of the big motivations behind this driving pressure analysis was just this issue of diaphragm protection because as I said earlier, often we use sedation to suppress respiratory effort to limit tidal volume. And if there are patients in whom that's not necessary, we can allow them to breathe spontaneously with larger volumes because the, the injury risk and the, and the benefit is low from lowering tidal volume. Then that's a patient in whom it's a lot easier to do lung and, and diaphragm protective ventilation. So part, you know, part of the motivation here is to develop a, a an approach to ventilation that's purely guided by the lung distending pressure and the pressure being generated by the respiratory muscles. And I think now we've hit on a pretty simple way of doing the, uh, this at the bedside uh, using an expiratory occlusion maneuver that uh, we're hoping to test in, in upcoming clinical trials here in Canada. Uh, so yeah, I, I call it a kind of pressure and effort guided strategy rather than a, a volume 
guided strategy per se. But that's just one example. I mean, we, we the, you know, it's crazy that after all this time, we still haven't figured out who to use higher PEEP in. Uh, that's another burning question. Um, there, there's probably so many others. Well, those are really exciting. I'm actually uh, looking very forward to hearing more about your index respiratory occlusion uh, test uh, study. That, that'll be very interesting. I guess this will conclude our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Goliger, for an absolutely phenomenal discussion of his study and of uh, respiratory physiology. Uh, thank you, Dr. Goliger. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Uh, this is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.